Now, do you agree with this assessment of our society and our culture or not? So do you agree with us? Wrestle with it for a moment. The statement that there is in Britain today an increasing animosity towards the Christian faith. So just think about that for a moment. Is that, is that a fair statement to say of our culture that there is increasing, let's go for increasing, not just animosity, but increasing anger towards Christianity today, a mounting outrage at biblical Christianity in the public square. Do you think that is true? Do you think that is a fair assessment? I think it's true, isn't it? We've gone from valuing Christianity in mid-20th century Britain to rebelling against Christianity in the 60s and 70s to basically dismissing Christianity in the 80s and 90s. And then we finally landed in this place that to hold any sort of biblical value, it seems to today in 2019 simply draw disdain and contempt does it not? Now, I would argue that that has been the situation for the last few years, but I'm also going to suggest to you tonight that that is only set to get worse in the next couple of weeks. Why would I say that? Well, because as we all go uh, in this room tonight, we're set for a general election, aren't we? We are set very soon in this country to go to the polls. And that is a time, I'm sure you would agree, when morals and values are increasingly scrutinized and under the microscope. An election can be a time where Christians face contempt and disdain. So I guess the question we have then before us is, well, how do, if that is potentially what is going to happen, how do we deal with that as a Christian church? In fact, how is it that you and I should view the increasing animosity that biblical Christianity faces uh, in this time, in this year? Well, this evening, do you know what we're going to do? We're, we're going to use Google Translate. That's what we're going to do. Have you got Google Translate on your phone? I know that some of you do. It is mind-blowing to me every time. I must be showing my age. If you don't have Google Translate and you don't know what Google Translate is, it's pretty simple, really. Simple but amazing. So you'll have in front of you a section of foreign text, an A4 page of what we go for, Spanish, French in front of you. And then what do you do? You get your phone, you open Google Translate, and you hold your phone in front of this foreign text, and suddenly, magically, uh, your phone will automatically translate the text before your very eyes, this interpretive lens that translates the text. That's what we've got tonight. We're going to use Google Translate tonight because this evening we look to Psalm number 2. What's Psalm 2? In Psalm 2, not only do we see the Lord Jesus Christ overcome all opposition to his throne, but in Psalm 2, what God does is he gives you an interpretive framework. He gives you a framework to understand the opposition and hostility and animosity that exists today to the biblical faith. Okay. And I don't know, maybe you noticed, did you, that there are in Psalm 2, four voices, four 
characters who speak in this psalm. Do you see that? There's four sections to the psalm, each with a voice, each with a character speaking. Uh, so let's consider these. Can I invite you to please turn with me to I was going to say Numbers chapter 6. I made that same mistake two weeks ago. Don't turn to Numbers chapter 6. That was this morning. Turn to Psalm number 2. Please have it in front of you again. I'll reiterate if you're young. You've got the boys and girls here. Let's keep one eye on the text. Psalm 2. And let's hear together. Let's hear the first voice. And so let's hear earth's rulers. Earth's rulers. Now, when, when we're studying a psalm especially, um, what is it the first thing, what's the first thing that we want to know? We want to know when we're studying a psalm, we want to know something of the context, don't we? Something of the situation of the psalm. Well, despite what you might think in Psalm 2, we can assert some things about the authorship of the psalm. Because it might be the case, if you're with me and you're engaged in this, that you've scanned through this psalm and you're thinking, well, we can't say anything about authorship. There's no superscription. There's no named author in psalm number two. Ah, listen, though, when the New Testament quotes psalm two, so we're talking about Acts chapter four, Luke quotes this. And what he does at that point, through obviously the inspiration of the Holy Holy Spirit, what Luke does is he attributes this psalm to David. You see, so the Holy Spirit tells you, right, not here, but in the New Testament, this is a Davidic psalm, that this is a psalm that is written by King David, okay? So we do have at least a window into some context, but I want to build on that a little bit. And what I want you to notice here is actually the flow of opposition to King David. So can I ask you just to look at the first stanza, the first section. Let's do that together, shall we? All of us, let's look at the first stanza. Now, everyone's noticed, surely in the reading and the fact that we just sung it, surely everyone notices that there's rebellion here and it's against God, but who else? It's against the Lord's anointed. So it's a rebellion against King David's going on here. Rebellion. But can you see how it morphs and evolves in the first stanza? Look at the first line. So you've got, what have you got in the first line? Did you, it's, it's rage. It's anger. But actually in the first line, it's, it's, it's rage, but it's also a disquiet. So the, the, there, there's murmuring against God against his anointed. Do you see how it changes? Follow the psalm down. What's the next line? Do you see it? Verse 2. Do you see how it evolves? You've now got these kind of vassal leaders under Davidic control. These vassal leaders. And do you see what they're doing now? In the second line, they're beginning to plot. It's not just rage. You see, it's changing. Begin to scheme against God. They actually see, do you see it there? They, they, they take counsel together. And then I ask you, where does it end? Look at verse three. Do you see? It morphs into action. Resolve. So there's this sort of disquiet, this murmuring, this anger, but eventually it's let's do something about it. Let's burst the bonds. Let's break the cords. You see, so anger, disquiet from vassal leaders, that rebellion morphing into real resolve against God and God's king. Okay, something of the context, but 
What, come on, what, what do we make of this here tonight, you and I? What do we do with this? I want to suggest just here two very brief things. One, we have to notice, it's legitimate to notice, that this sort of rebellion and opposition, it continues today in 2019. This continues today. Here, I want to test your Hebrew. Okay? How's, how's your Hebrew, your biblical Hebrew? Is it, is it good? It's better than you think it is. Okay? Here's your grammar test. So everyone's noticed that this is rebellion against God and his anointed. So here's your Hebrew test. What is the Hebrew for anointed or the anointed one? We, we, some of us know it. I can hear some people whispering it. Messiah. The anointed one. What's that in, what's that in the Greek? The anointed one. We get to Christos. We get to Christ. See, it's a very basic point, but this psalm is not just focused on King David. You see where I'm going, that this psalm is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, do you think I'm making too much of that? Well, have a guess which verse Luke in the New Testament quotes when he's talking about Herod and Pontius Pilate saying it against Jesus. Guess, well, yeah, I wonder which, yeah, he quotes this, you know, taking counsel, the leaders taking this is a This is a psalm ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me spell it out, that this is a psalm that actually speaks of the opposition to Christ and his body and his people that continues today the nation's rage against the church. That's, we've got to notice that. This opposition continues today. I think, in a sense, almost more interestingly, if you allow that, we also have to notice the cause of this rebellion. Can I ask you to look at verse 3? Let's look at verse 3 together. Like, what do you think is in view? You answer this for me, please. Do, do you see? What does, he, what does he say? Let us, the nation say, let us burst their bonds. Speaking of God and David. Look at the next bit. And let's cast away their cords. What do you think they're grumbling about? The bonds, the cords. Do you, do you see the answer? They feel as though they are enslaved by God, don't they? Let's burst their bonds, cast away their cords. They feel that they are subjugated by David, the Lord's anointed. Do you not find that really interesting? Because, are you not with me that that's exactly the view that our culture has today? Like, come on, how does our society view biblical Christianity? People out there think that biblical Christianity is thing that enslaves the people. Isn't that right? Like, why is there, I'm asking you seriously, why is there anger and animosity towards the biblical faith today? Why? Because London buys into the lie that the devil used in the Garden of Eden to trick Adam and Eve. What was the lie? The lie was that relationship with God is something that constrains people. Relationship with God is something that restricts people. It's the lie that if we're going to really fully enjoy our life, we've got to reject God's kingship. We've just got to go our own way. We've got to pursue our own desires, pursue any sort of license. And so... Maybe you see now why the psalmist begins the psalm the way he does. With a cry of utter bewilderment. Because do you not do the same tonight? Do you not cry out in London? Why do you rage? Why do the nations rage? Because God is not a God who enslaves. 
Christ has come to set his people free. So we hear from earth's rulers. Secondly, let's move on. Secondly, we hear from God. Secondly, we hear from God. Now, um, when making films, I was reading about that a lot this week, when making films, Hollywood returns, doesn't it, to um, similar themes in movies a lot of the time, doesn't it? We could list, we could spend half an hour listing the obvious themes that Hollywood goes for, doesn't it? Good versus evil is the bottom line for Hollywood, isn't it? Certainly with all these Marvel films, that sort of idea. Or vengeance. There's another one, isn't it? Hollywood loves a vengeance film. Well, another common kind of motif that Hollywood loves to use is the idea of successful mutiny. Isn't that right? Like mafia films, it's always about successful sort of rebellion and mutiny. Or let's go for a sort of submarine war film. We've all sat through those, haven't we? You know, the idea of where the, the, the sailors in the name of evil or selfish gain, what do they, they overthrow the captain of the submarine. And uh, there's nuclear warheads and there's chaos and it's a nightmare. But you get the idea, do you not? Like successful mutiny. Now I'm asking you tonight, is that what we're dealing with in Psalm chapter, Psalm 2, Psalm number 2? Like there's mutiny. There is utter rebellion. Is it successful? And how does God respond to you? Will you look with me to the second stanza? Please look at it with me. So do you see how does God respond here? You see in verse 5 and 6, do you see how, how he responds? You, you could say to me, well, there's anger from God. You see, like he responds to this rage from the nations by just basically dismissing them out of hand. And God just says, forgets it, dismisses it and says, I'm appointing my king. Doesn't even engage with it in a sense. So you have that in 5 and 6. But aren't you with me? Isn't verse 5? Four, one of the standout verses in all the Bible. Like, isn't verse 4 just such a startling verse? Look at it with me. Do you see it? What does God do? The nations rage. The political leaders, they rebel against God. And what does God do? Verse 4, he laughs. Our God, isn't it an amazing image? Our God is scoffing and laughing. The very idea of rebellion against his king. Now you stick with me for a second here, please. I'm asking you, how is it possible that God can laugh? Like, how is it possible that he can scoff? I mean, we are talking with and dealing with like widespread rebellion. Is God not threatened? I mean, the earth is raging against him. Is, 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 is he not threat? Is he not at risk? And you know the answer. But look at it at the beginning of the verse, verse 4. How is it that God can laugh? Do you see it? It's because God is the one who is seated on high. God is the one who sits in heaven. Do you see what is underlined for you, reinforced for you tonight? What it is, is the sheer uncontested supremacy of the God that you worship tonight. You see it? The idea that God is so far above and beyond and higher that and more powerful than, than any earthly ruler, any earthly king. And in fact, friend, like, does it not remind you a little bit of the Tower of Babel episodes 
in the book of Genesis. Do you know that story? Well, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible, one of the reasons why I love the Tower of Babel story is because it makes me laugh. It's a funny story, isn't it? I mean, do you remember it, do you? All of the earth gathering together. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to storm heaven's gates. And all the people get together and they're trying to build this massive tower. And we're going to build our way all the way to heaven. And we're going to overthrow God. They're going to storm heaven's gates. And then what does Genesis say? Do you remember it from Genesis? It's hilarious. Genesis says that God has to come down. <laughs> to see it they're building this supposedly massive threat to god and god has to come down it's so small so pathetic god can hardly see their efforts from heaven and isn't it a similar idea here earth's rulers leaders rebel against god god laughs what a hysterical pathetic idea But I do think, in all honesty, friends, that what we've got there in front of us is important for London City Presbyterian Church these weeks in 2019. Because I'm sure you probably agree with this, that an election time is a time where there can be increasing fear in the Christian church. And there can be a diminishing of confidence at election time. Maybe you see what I'm getting at, do you? We can look at the news and we can see politicians who hold the Christian faith and they're delisted from the parties. Not talking about one specific instance, but this happens reasonably frequently. Or can I ask, have you taken an online questionnaire about who you should vote for? Lots of people do this at an election time and you know how that works. You know, you're asked 40, 50 questions about, you know, what would you, what do you think on this matter and this matter and this matter? And you get through the end and you spend all this time and hour answering these questions. You get to the end and it's supposed to tell you which party aligns with your views and what happens at the end. You find that none of the political parties, none of them seem to match up with what you hold to be biblical values. And, and you can see that there's fear right and and there's confusion raises questions for us and do you not see what god does here like do you not see what god does god gives us the remedy for that lack of confidence and he gives us the remedy for that fear and what are we supposed to do what are you supposed to do we are supposed to remember that ours is the great king He is the one who is supreme over all, sovereign God, that to calm our fears, we are confronted with the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll be really specific for you tonight. Are you concerned? Like, do you worry about the increasing anger? Do you? Are you worried about the way London's going or the way Britain's going? Does that concern you? All you need to do is remember this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has created the very ground that a pressure group walks on. That the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, the, is the one who gives people the very breath that our politicians have in their lungs. And you remember that for a second and you realize, of course it is, that the one enthroned on heaven at the rage of these little earthly rulers, the one in heaven, what does he do? He laughs. So we hear from 
earth rulers. Secondly, we hear from God. Thirdly, we hear from the king. Now we hear from the king, the anointed. So you're with me uh, thus far. We're following the pattern here. We see what's going on. There's four voices. We're in the third voice here. We've heard the nations rage and rally against God. We've seen God respond to that. But it's at this point a new character speaks up. The anointed speaks. But maybe you find what he says rather peculiar. Do you? Have a look at verse 7 with me. Have a look at verse 7. So what does he say in verse 7? So David, now focus on David. He cries out, the Lord said to me, what's this? You are my son. God says to David, you are my son. Now, if, if you are perplexed about that, the key to this is to view verse 7 through the lens of what we call the Davidic covenant. Do we know what we're talking about when we're talking about the Davidic covenant? So this is where, in Second Samuel chapter 7, God unveils more of his plan of redemption. Okay? So everyone in this room knows what. We know that from the very start, God planned to save his people from their sin, right? We know that from the very start, that was God's plan. But in Second Samuel chapter 7, what God does is unveil to us, unveil to Israel, his plan to use kingship for that great end. In fact, in Second Samuel chapter 7, what God does is say that I'm going to treat Israel's king specially that I am going to adopt for myself Israel's kings. And he says, I will be to them a father, a father. And as if you look at verse 7, do you not love how immediate it is? Look at the precise wording of verse 7. It's not just you are my son. What's the next word? Do you see? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So I just love this so much. It's the idea of immediacy here. It's the idea that this is a coronation psalm. So the idea that this precise verse here was read out at the successive coronations of the Davidic king. Can you imagine it? Some of you are fans of The Crown on Netflix, I know, so that'd be really easy for you to imagine this. But The Crown, just as The Crown is lowered down on the head of the successive Davidic kings, what happens? Just as The Crown goes down, it is read out, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. A coronation moment in this psalm. Now, I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. It's a lovely image, isn't it? But what is this to say to us, this idea of a royal sonship? Well, the first thing we've got to understand is how this speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll put you on the spot, and I will ask you a technical question. See, everyone with me here. So we're talking about this verse. What's the verse? The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So here's your question. If this psalm is about Jesus, when was that verse fulfilled? You are my son, today I have 
begotten you. We all understand, of course, don't we, is Christianity 101 that Christ was never, he never became God's son. We all know that. Of course, he's only begotten from the Father. But if you think about Jesus' ministry, when was this royal sonship unveiled to the world? Who's, who, I'm not going to pick on you, but what would you say? Some of you might say it was a gradual thing, would you? The baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, and we hear from God, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And if you were going to say to me, and it's a gradual thing, this revelation of the royal sonship, then I would say, of course it is, but there's a special moment. I want you to hear it, and I want you to appreciate it, that part of what God the Father was doing in raising Jesus Christ to life was unveiling him as the fulfillment of this very first. Did you hear that? Did everyone pick it up? That the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was a revelation of Jesus' identity. In fact, let me prove it to you. This is what Luke says in Acts chapter 13. Now, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Just listen to this. Luke says that what God promised to the fathers, in he fulfilled in raising Jesus, in saying, listen to it, Luke says, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. The resurrection, a revelation, a fulfillment of this. I ask you, when was it that Christ Jesus enjoyed his coronation as the royal son? He enjoyed his coronation in the darkness of that very tomb. Or as the apostle Paul says in Romans 1, he was declared to be the son of God. How? By his resurrection from the dead. So it speaks of Christ as the royal son. He fulfills this. But the other element is, is what Christ is therefore going to do in the years ahead. So I want to ask you to do this. Look at verse 9 to see what Christ is going to do. This should excite you. So look at verse 9. How <laughs> exciting is this? So Christ is the royal son of God. What is he going to do? Look at it. You shall break. The, the idea of the translation is better if it was, uh, it's actually quoted in Revelation. The idea is better. You shall rule them. Okay, that's the first part. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's just there. I've got a pause. I need you to be with me if you're a Christian here. I need you to understand this. This psalm that we're reading tonight in this cold room thousands of years later, this psalm is written for you if you're a Christian. And this psalm was written to give you hope friends. Now what you're supposed to do when you sing this, and in a moment we're going to sing it, now what you're supposed to do when you sing this, when you, what you're supposed to do when you read it and meditate on it, is to look ahead and to appreciate what is coming. And what is that? That though there is anger and increasing animosity today, there's a time coming where that's going to change. There's a time coming where there is going to be peace on earth for those who are in Christ Jesus, where animosity will be no more. There's, there's a time coming where Christ shall rule the nations and he will judge and conquer evil. And let me just quote Isaiah chapter 65 
to hear what God tells you is coming. Because this is exciting. Through Christ Jesus, we learn that there is coming a time where former things will not be remembered. There's a time coming when the sound, even the sound of weeping, will be heard no more. It is a time when God's servants will eat with him as his enemies are put to shame. Do you see it? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the fulfillment of the psalm. He is the royal son. And through him, the Lord Jesus Christ as king will calm the tumult that we hear and face today. And he will bring peace and peace to his people. So we hear from the nations, they rage at God. We hear God responds. We hear from the anointed for the king. And then we close this evening because we also hear from the psalmist. We hear from the psalmist. Now, correct me later, seriously, if I'm wrong in this, but I think I'm right in saying that despite the fact that we are a city center church, that we have never, in my time anyway, seven odd years, I don't think we've ever had any major celebrities in our services. I don't think so. We've had celebrities in the building during the week. We've had Russell Brand and Timothy Spall and and people popping into the building. But I don't think we've had any celebrities or major celebrities uh, in the services. And I wish that had changed this week, you know? Like, given the material that we're dealing with today, and given that the psalm ends with a warning to those in political power, do you know what I wish had happened? I wish that Boris Johnson had been visiting Postman's Park and just popped in, or Jeremy Corbyn, or Nicola Sturgeon was down in London weekend. She'd just pop into Postman's Park and thought, oh, I'll just stick my head into a service. I wish it had happened. Because look at the warning. Look at the last stanza. For those in power, do you see what God says? Look at verse 10. They are to be wise. They are be wise. In verse 11, they are told, implored to serve the Lord. But do you know what the heart of the psalm is? The heartbeat of it all is in verse 12. Do you see what they're implored to do? They are to kiss the sun. That's the beating heart of this psalm, this, this exhortation to political leaders. Kiss the sun. Now, can I ask you, what do you think's in view there? What sort of kiss? What sort of kiss is it? Like, do you, do you think this kiss is an affectionate kiss? Do you think it's like a big embrace or something like that? No. Right? No. Do you think it's a, a French-style greeting? That sort of kiss, you know, a peck on both cheeks? Is that what's in view here? And again, you'd say, no, like given the context, given the fact that this is a, an obviously royal psalm, a coronation psalm, what sort of kiss is it? This is a, this is a kiss of submission, is it not? I mean, that picture, you can picture it of a, of a humble subject, fearfully with reverence and all coming before the throne of a monarch and a sovereign, And what does that subject do? The subject falls to the ground, face to the ground, is given the hand of the monarch, and that subject kisses the hand, kisses the ring. It's a kiss of submission. You can see that. But I have to say to you, friends, what we have to appreciate is that this is not just for political leaders. This is an appeal to all of humanity 
at the end of this psalm. And so, in a sense, I end by asking you this question. As you sit in this room, and at this point in your life, spiritually speaking, can you see in your heart of hearts that you have done what this psalm calls for? Have you kissed the Son? Have you come to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life? Have you seen that it is Christ and Christ alone who can provide salvation for his people? Have you come to see who he is, that he is the Lord Almighty, that he is the exalted one, that he is the one who reigns? And have you bowed to him in repentance and faith? Can you say that? Can you? If so, I really do close with this exhortation for you, Christian friends, Christians, listen to me, please. Did you notice the inclusio in the psalm? Did you notice the brackets that begin the book of Psalms? You see, we very often get Psalm 2 wrong. We think it is an isolated psalm, and it's not. It begins the Psalter. So you have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and it's brother and sister. Like they stand side by side. They are supposed to be connected. Now you see it, do you? Because how does Psalm 1 begin? Do you see? With this theme of blessedness. Blessed, happy, contented is the man. Happy is the man. And how does Psalm 2 end? Do you see? With the same theme. The theme of blessedness, contentment, happiness. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. So my exhortation to you is so obvious. Are you sitting in here as a Christian and you're worried about the UK? Worried about the direction of Britain? Worried about the politics of this country? Worried about pressure groups? Worried about how Christians can continue in the police or in the NHS or in schools? Worried about stuff? then I implore you to do as the psalmist commands you to do. And friends, take refuge tonight in the royal son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Almighty. Surely you see tonight, he is the one who reigns. Who is Christ Jesus? You know who he is. He's the king of kings, all kings. And tonight, if you look to him, there is joy to be had. There is contentment to be had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is contentment even as the nations rage. Friends, let us bow our heads and let's look to Christ. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this uh, psalm of coronation. We thank you that it is true, Lord God, that you have publicly revealed the identity of Jesus of Nazareth and raising him to life, that he is the fulfillment of this psalm, that he is the uh, eternal king in the Davidic line through whom you will save your people. And we thank you that even as the nations rage, we have nothing to fear. We are safe, safe as the subjects of Christ. And we do pray all of these things for his glory and in his name. Amen.